Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Today's case contains graphic details of murder, sexual assault, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Essex, Vermont is a city with a population of 19,844 people in 2011. 19,844 people that were going about their days during the month of June. 19,842 people got to see the light of another day. Two would not. This is because the town of Essex, Vermont saw a monster on the night of June 8th, 2011. That monster would go on to take away two beautiful, intelligent, kind humans from the world. And he left a small rural community with feelings of sadness, loss, and fear that would never quite subside. It would take investigators nearly a year to learn just what had happened to Bill and Lorraine Courier on the night of June 8th, 2011, when a killer from Alaska began to speak with investigators about his brutal past. No one could have suspected the story that he would eventually regal investigators with, and just how it would impact the family of Bill and Lorraine Courier, or the small town of Essex Junction, Vermont. Today we discuss part two of our four-part series about the monster in our midst, Serial Killer Israel Keys. He said that it was in his kind of early 20s, mid-20s that he really came to terms with who he was. Uh, recognizing that he was different from other people and that he had these urges and that there wasn't, you know, he tried to initially blame it on, you know, Satan and religious things and and why he was like this and a number of different things. And then he ultimately realized that that's just who he was and he accepted that. And I think that as he began to do that, it became easier for him to do. Um, He enjoyed, he talked about enjoying the fact that he was two different people and really being able to play that off. with people and that people had absolutely no idea what he was doing. He even referenced times where he would be at his job when he was living in Washington and people would talk about criminals and how stupid they were and how they did this to get caught or that to get caught and how he enjoyed those kind of conversations because people had no clue what he was doing. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to grab our flashlights and sneakers as we walk the streets of Essex Junction, Vermont, circa 2011, when Bill and Lorraine Courier would have the misfortune of crossing paths with serial killer Israel Keys. Bill and Lorraine Courier were a couple who lived in the medium-sized town of Essex Junction, Vermont. The two had married back on July 20th of 1985, in a ceremony that was located in Grand Isle, Vermont. July of 2011 would actually mark the couple's 26th wedding anniversary. They were a happy couple for all accounts and purposes. They had always seemed to be very devoted to one another. They didn't have children or pets, but they had family members and close friends whom they were deeply connected to. Bill and Lorraine Courier were upstanding citizens within the small New England community they resided in. Bill worked for the University of Vermont, as he had since 1986. He was an animal care technician who was usually the first in the office, according to a coworker of Bill's. Lorraine worked at what was then referred to as the Fletcher Allen Hospital, which later would be renamed to the University of Vermont Medical Center. People in the community often still refer to the hospital by its old name of Fletcher Allen. Lorraine worked in the Patient Financial Services Department at the hospital. Both Bill and Lorraine had worked in their roles for many years. They were the type of people who always showed up for work, 
rarely called out, and if they did need to call out, they absolutely would have called their employers to notify them of the need to stay home. Most often, Lorraine would drive both she and Bill into their respective offices for work, as the two worked next door to one another, which made carpooling easy. The buildings weren't far apart, and driving together saved on having to find parking in Vermont's college city of Burlington. Bill and Lorraine were a quiet couple. They never caused trouble within their neighborhood, keeping mostly to themselves. While they were on the quieter side, the couriers often had friends and family over to their home. They were often observed watching birds together in their backyard and just seemed to like to spend time with one another. They were a kind of couple who would often let the neighborhood kids use their pool during the summer months, even though the couple themselves didn't have children. Bill and Lorraine had moved to Essex Junction, Vermont five years previously and settled into a small white one-story ranch in a suburban development on Colbert Street, off of Susie Wilson Road in Essex Junction, Vermont. The area was quiet like most side streets in Vermont, and it was set back from the main highway. The house was cute and perfect for a couple looking for a safe neighborhood to settle into. Considering that in 2011, there was a total of 16,011 crimes in the entire state of Vermont, which of the 16,000 plus crimes, only 11 of those were murders. The couriers had picked one of the safest towns to live in the entire state of Vermont. Bill Courier was 49 years old and Lorraine was 55 years old. The couple had a history of health issues that they were able to manage with medication. Bill was a diabetic who needed insulin to stay healthy, as well as suffering from ankylosing spondylitis, which is a debilitating disorder causing inflammation of the joints. This disorder led to Bill having had a fusion to his neck vertebrae, making it so that Bill was incapable of moving his head from side to side. Lorraine also had health conditions, as she suffered from cardiomyopathy, a heart condition which also required her to take daily medications the same as Bill. On June 8th of 2011, Bill and Lorraine Courier would leave work around 5 p.m. and arrive home roughly a half hour or so later. Their place of employment was only about five miles away, but there typically is some evening traffic even in rural Vermont. The couple arrived home to the one-story ranch on Colbert Street and would settle in for the evening. June 8th was the last time the couriers would be seen alive. At some point on the evening of June 8th, Bill and Lorraine Courier would disappear. It would take investigators 10 months before they were able to piece together just what had happened to the kindly couple on Colbert Street that evening in June. On June 9th, 2011, the couriers would not go into their respective jobs. This was not in the realm of normal for the couple. They were known to be reliable and would always go into the office, or at the very least, call ahead if they couldn't make it in. People were beginning to grow concerned for Bill and Lorraine at this point in time. No one had heard back from the couple that whole day. Bill and Lorraine Courier's co-workers would reach out to the courier's family members in order to alert them to the couple's absence. Bill Courier's sister called in for a welfare check to be conducted on the couple after realizing that no one had been able to get in contact with the two. And because Essex is such a small, tight-knit community, the missing couple's disappearance was noticed right away, so it was concerning to everyone who knew them, for both Bill and Lorraine to be missing from work at the same time, on the same day, with no one hearing from either one. One day later on June 10th, the search for Lorraine and Bill Courier would officially begin as a missing person search. After the welfare check was conducted on the evening of June 9th, 
Investigators would conclude that the courier's disappearance was suspicious in nature, requesting for a warrant to enter the home of the couriers that night. Investigators would arrive at the scene of the courier's last known whereabouts on June 9th, which was their home on Colbert Street. When investigators arrived, they would note that the doors and windows were locked to the house. It was spotted that a fan had possibly been removed from the window that led into the attached garage of the courier's home. The door leading into the home from the garage looked to have been a storm door, and the glass pane in the door was shattered, strewing glass along the floor of the garage and entry room to the house. Police would also determine that the courier's green Saturn was nowhere to be seen. It looked as if the car, as well as the couriers, were both missing since June 8th. Later that day of June 10th, investigators would bring in the Vermont Department of Public Safety's mobile crime lab to process what looked to be the official scene of the crime. Later that afternoon of June 10th, the dark green Saturn sedan belonging to the couriers was found in a parking lot of an apartment complex on nearby Pearl Street that was less than a mile away from the courier's home and just a few feet away from a nearby bus stop. The car was spotted by tenants of the apartment complex, as the spot it was parked in was rarely used by any of the tenants. Nearby to the car was a set of two large green dumpsters. Investigators would retrieve the car as well as remove both dumpsters for further analysis and crime scene processing. Police began to track Lorraine and Bill's cell phones in hopes of recent use. They would come up empty as the phones never pinged and never seemed to be used again. They would also keep track of the courier's bank accounts over the next several weeks, again, hoping for some kind of activity on the accounts. There would be no use of funds or banking activity after June 8th of 2011. Family members knew nothing as to where they could have gone. Neighbors saw and heard nothing. A man who lived two houses down from the couriers stated that the couriers had lived in the neighborhood for the past five years. He went on to state that Bill Courier was, quote, a quiet kind of guy, but friendly enough, unquote. Another neighbor stated that the couriers always had company over and that they always celebrated the holidays. They had lots of Christmas decorations up on their house like many small-town Vermonters. A neighbor that lived two doors down from the courier stated, quote, he still feels safe in the neighborhood. If someone abducted the couriers, that person likely had some connection to the couple, unquote. Little did he know his assumption of safety was inaccurate. The neighborhood, as well as the town of Essex, was brought to a frenzying height. This was a friendly, small community neighborhood. Terrible things like abductions, robberies, arson, and murders were and are rare in this Green Mountain state. People held out hope that perhaps the couriers decided to just take an impromptu vacation. Weeks would begin to tick by, and there would continue to be no sign of the couriers. Their small white ranch on Colbert Street would remain dark, their family members would not hear from the couple. Investigators found many pieces of the courier's disappearance unsettling. To begin with, Bill had diabetes and needed to take insulin daily. Bill had not taken any of his medications with him prior to his disappearance. Lorraine was also on daily medications for her heart condition, and yet she too had not brought any of her medications with her. Lorraine would also neglect to take along her contacts, her contact solution, and her glasses, all items that she would normally have carried with her upon leaving her home. Her wallet and purse, however, were missing. 
Bill's wallet was found to be in the Saturn when investigators discovered the vehicle, which was very concerning to investigators. Lorraine had recently purchased a snub-nosed Ruger, 38 caliber handgun. According to police at that time, the handgun was one of the few items missing from the courier's home. Lorraine had purchased the handgun as protection for the times that she would go up to her and Bill's camp up in Norton, Vermont, which lies in the remote northeast kingdom of Vermont. The couple didn't take along any belongings that typically one would take if you were going on vacation for any length of time. Investigators would begin to worry that the chances of finding the couple alive were diminishing as every day began to pass. In an interview with William Courier's mother, Marilyn Shates, she was quoted as stating, quote, every day that they're not found increases our concern, unquote. Marilyn had also set up a $10,000 reward for any information into the disappearance of her son Bill and his wife Lorraine. Questions would eat away at investigators and the community. Did the couriers go on a last-minute trip without their phones, money, or medication? Seems impossible, and it was. Little did the state of Vermont know that there was a serial killer on the prowl. Over the weeks, an undisclosed eyewitness would come forward and report that they had thought they'd seen an unknown man driving the courier's car on Pearl Street the night of June 8, 2011. That witness would go on to describe the man in fairly strong detail to investigators, allowing for a composite sketch to be drawn. The witness described the man as having scraggly shoulder-length long hair, a beard, wide-set eyes, and a high forehead. Unfortunately, the sketch didn't seem to bring investigators closer to identifying the unknown man who was thought to have been in the courier's car that night they disappeared. Local police were at their wit's end as to what happened to this kindly older Vermont couple. Was it a burglary gone wrong? A possible drug-related crime? Nothing seemed to fit. The only thing that was very apparent to police was that the couriers did not leave voluntarily. The broken glass and the cut phone line was the only lead the police could go off of, and unfortunately, no one would know the exact story for at least another year. At the time of the courier's disappearance, investigators were unsure whether there was a third person involved with the couriers going missing. Investigators became convinced that perhaps the disappearance was related to someone in the courier's life who had abducted the couple. It seemed like the only obvious solution was that someone out there had taken issue with the couple and decided to enact some kind of revenge. In an interview, Essex Police Chief Brad LaRose was quoted as stating, quote, We do believe it's an isolated incident, specific to the couriers, unquote. Although police had little leads into the disappearance, they were still active in trying to figure out just what had happened to the couriers that night in June. In an article for the Burlington Free Press on July 19, 2011, written by Matt Ryan and Mike Donahue, it is stated that Chief LaRose said that, quote, Police now doubt the credibility of a composite sketch, drawn of a man whom a witness reportedly saw with the couriers in their green Saturn on Pearl Street on June 9th, the day a relative reported the couple missing. However, police still believe the witness saw the courier's car that day. Police suspect someone, perhaps the perpetrator or perpetrators, or an associate, has information about the case, unquote. LaRose went on to state that, quote, Somebody knows something. The longer time goes on since their disappearance, the more concerned we are that they may not be alive, unquote. 
They reviewed every bank account, cell phone, employment record, and computer all to no avail. Next, they looked at local surveillance footage from upwards of 25 businesses, hoping they could find something valuable to shed light onto where the couriers had disappeared off to. There were two detectives who had been assigned to the courier's case, as well as talks of a large-scale search that was to be conducted throughout the Essex area. The disappearance of the couriers was front-page news all throughout the Green Mountain State that summer of 2011. Abductions and disappearances are not common here, and so a case such as the couriers became a high-profile case within the state of Vermont, but not really nationwide news at that time. In July, nearly six weeks after the couriers had disappeared, Chief Brad LaRose would begin to consult with the Federal Bureau of Investigations, as well as with the U.S. Marshal Service regarding the couple's disappearance. Investigators were able to determine that the courier's Saturn had nearly 40 miles put on it that evening they disappeared. It's unknown why their car would have 40 miles on it after being found less than one mile away from the courier's home. Vermont's a small state, and going 20 miles in either direction could easily take you into another county or even across state lines in some areas. Investigators were able to determine the exact amount of mileage put on the courier's vehicle that night due to a service ticket on June 4th that gave them the exact odometer mileage on the courier's Saturn at that time. Investigators then calculated up all the known trips the couriers had done over the last four days before they had disappeared. What remained was an unaccounted for 40 miles that did not seem to be a trip that the couriers had made previous to their disappearance. Investigators realized that they needed to expand their search parameter in order to compensate for a 20-mile radius and the return trip, as the Saturn went at least 20 miles away from where the courier's home was. The vehicle was then returned and was left at the apartment complex a mile away from the courier's home on Pearl Street. Investigators would continue the search for Bill and Lorraine Courier throughout the remaining summer months of 2011 and into the fall, with no real developments occurring after the courier's initial disappearance. On October 26, 2011, an article was published in the Burlington Free Press, stating that the Essex police found clues that could help pinpoint an area where Bill Courier's cell phone may have last been used. Police were on foot, searching through fields, forests, and around the Winooski River, which was the closest body of water to the courier's home, looking for any evidence in the disappearance of the couriers that night on June. Little did they know how close they had come to discovering the secret that lay hidden within the woods of the Woodside Natural Area in Essex Junction, Vermont. The police were going off of a call log from Bill Courier's phone that they had been able to obtain from Verizon Wireless. Bill Courier had received a phone call at 7.26 a.m. on the morning of June 9th. This is the morning after it is assumed he and Lorraine had disappeared. The call was determined to be from Bill's employer, seeing as they were worried because he did not show up for work. The FBI was able to determine the area that the cell phone had been around at the time of the call based on the cell phone tower's last ping on Bill Courier's phone. Essex Police Chief Brad LaRose stated that, quote, it is disappointing on several fronts, unquote, when they came out of the woods with empty hands. The neighborhood the couriers lived in was a small suburban neighborhood five minutes from I-95, which is the Vermont interstate system. The neighborhood held a mix of ranch-style houses and small one-floor homes. 
Most of the backyards were not secluded, and the houses were actually very close to the street. There also does not appear to be street lights along the neighborhood, making it very dark at night. The courier's home actually had a large tree in the front of the house, which did make the property even darker to see into at night. If you were to stand in one of the house's backyards in that neighborhood and look down the street, you could see into multiple neighbors' backyards until you hit a fence. I should know how the properties are laid out in that development, as I used to live in that very same neighborhood just a couple houses away from the courier's home. We want to give a quick disclaimer that the story that is about to unfold is graphic in nature and detail as it deals with the abduction, rape, and assault, and subsequent murders of the victims. Listener discretion is advised. The courier's disappearance would begin to draw less and less attention as the year moved past. After October of 2011, there were not too many new developments into the case of Bill and Lorraine Courier's disappearance. October would drift into November, and then December, and all of a sudden, the year had changed from 2011 to 2012. The Courier's case would begin to drift dangerously close into cold case territory. No leads were coming in, and while the police had a few persons of interest, there was not one single serious suspect. That is, until March 13th, 2012, when a man named Israel Keyes would be arrested in Texas regarding a simple traffic violation. Unbeknownst to the arresting officer at the time, Israel Keyes was about to tell a story that would cross from Washington to New Jersey, to New York, to Vermont, and then to Alaska. Investigators had no idea that they were dealing with a serial killer, perhaps one of the worst ones in modern history. In April of 2012, a now-incarcerated Israel Keyes would begin to tell a story about a couple he had abducted and subsequently murdered in Vermont. That couple would turn out to be Bill and Lorraine Courier. On the evening of June 8th of 2011, Bill and Lorraine Courier had lain asleep in their bed, the one that they had lovingly shared for nearly 26 years together, not realizing that this would be the last night they would spend alive together. While the couriers were asleep, Israel Keys would be walking down the street of Susie Wilson Road from the extended stay suites he was staying at. The handy suites, where Israel had decided to stay on a last-minute whim as he had been on his way towards his brother's home in Arista County, Maine, was located just a half a mile away from the small side road of Colbert Street. Israel Keys had recently built a new silencer for his gun, as he was a giant gun enthusiast, and he wanted to test the silencer to see how it would work. Israel Keys remembered that at some point a few years before, investigators now believe that it would have been in 2009, he had placed what he referred to as a, quote, kill kit, in the Woodside Natural Area in Essex, Vermont. That memory would be the memory that would unfortunately seal Bill and Lorraine Courier's fate. Israel Keys had gotten it in his head to pay a visit to small-town Vermont and to enact his murderous violence on the loving couple who had never harmed another soul. Bill and Lorraine Courier had never met the man who would take their lives. They had no inkling that such a man even had existed until that night on June 8, 2011. At approximately midnight that night, Israel Keyes walked down the street of Susie Wilson Road, taking a right as he walked away from his hotel. That right would take him to the small suburban development that resided at the four-way intersection off of Susie Wilson Road in Essex, Vermont. The first street Israel Keyes would have seen would have been that of Colbert Street the very street that the couriers lived on. The street would have been fairly dark, the weather muggy and raining that evening. The street lamps were dim, barely illuminating the predator that was then walking the sidewalks that night. 
Keyes would walk a few blocks down onto Colbert Street, and he would happen upon the home of Bill and Lorraine Courier. The small, unassuming white one-floor ranch would catch Israel Keyes' attention as the home had an attached garage. Keyes would pause and watch the home for a bit, assessing that the home didn't seem to have any dogs and no kids seemed to live in the house. He pegged the house as belonging to an older couple. Having been a construction worker, Israel Keyes had a vast knowledge of typical home layouts. The courier's home looked to fall in line with most ranches from that era. Keyes felt confident that he could easily find the courier's bedroom if he opted to go in the home. Unfortunately for Bill and Lorraine Courier, Keyes decided to do just that. Their home in Colbert was even more convenient to the bloodthirsty Israel Keyes, as he'd spent the earlier part of his afternoon looking for secluded or abandoned buildings nearby. To Keyes' delight, he found an old abandoned farmhouse about two miles away on Route 15 in Essex Center, across from the then Lane Farm. The building was well known to residents in town as it had stood for decades upon decades and had become abandoned and condemned at some point in its long history. The farmhouse had seemed perfect to Israel Keyes as a place where he could conduct his nefarious plans that evening. He would later tell investigators that he accomplished what he thought of as a, quote, blitz attack upon the unsuspecting Bill and Lorraine Courier that night, attacking them when they were at their most vulnerable, asleep in their beds. Keyes would sneak up to the Courier's home after observing no signs of a dog on the property. He would then go and cut the phone line, testing to see if the Courier's had a security system set up that would be triggered by the cutting of the phone line. The Courier's had no such security measures on their home. Keyes would then go to the window on the side of the Courier's ranch home, and he would push the fan that had been in the window out, he would then crawl through the window, which would put him into the attached portion of the courier's garage. Once in the garage, Keyes found a crowbar, and he used the crowbar to smash the window pane on the storm door, granting himself access now to the courier's home. Keyes would come prepared for the interior of the home's darkness by wearing a headlamp, flicking it on as soon as he entered the home. It would take Israel Keyes only five to six seconds upon entering the courier's home to walk to the couple's bedroom. Once inside the courier's bedroom, he would grab the zip ties he had brought with him and use those to tie both Bill and Lorraine up, with their hands behind their backs and their feet tied together, after he had scared them awake. After securing the couple, Keyes would question them, asking for their cell phones, as well as any weapons they had in the home. Israel Keyes would take Lorraine Courier's Ruger 38 caliber with him from the courier's home. Keyes would tell investigators that the couple was very cooperative with him at first, but he felt that they, quote, didn't take him seriously, unquote, throughout the night. Israel had directed the couple to not speak to one another while they sat there bound on their bed. He instructed them to only speak when he would speak to them. At one point, Israel caught Lorraine leaning towards Bill and speaking with him quietly. Israel assumed that they were trying to make a plan to escape, and so he grabbed Lorraine Courier by the throat and pushed her down into the mattress, trying to exert his control over the 55-year-old woman. In total, the attack on the couriers within their home would only take Israel Keys roughly 15 minutes. In that time, he had bound the couple, searched the home, and then abducted both Bill and Lorraine Courier. Israel Keys would pack one suitcase belonging to the couriers, and in that suitcase, he would pack items such as lingerie, clothing, and jewelry. Once Keys had gotten the items he wanted, he would then instruct the couriers at gunpoint to get in their car and he drove all three of them to a location that he had picked out specifically for his vicious plan. That location was 32 Upper Main Street in Essex Center, Vermont. 
It was the location of the abandoned farmhouse that Israel Keyes had spotted earlier that day, the one that had set so innocuously across from the old Ling farm property, there but mostly forgotten over the years. Keyes was wearing a mask and had the hood of his jacket up, but the light in the car dome came on when he entered the vehicle. It would be the first time that the couriers had any concept of the man who had broken into their home and abducted them out of nowhere. Israel Keys would put Lorraine in the front seat of the Saturn, her hands secured with cable ties behind her back and her feet also secured. Israel Keys would put Bill in the back seat of the Saturn as he was less concerned about Bill attempting to make an escape as he was in poorer health than Lorraine. Bill tried to engage Keys as they drove in the green Saturn. He spoke to Keys about being in the military. It would turn out that they shared the same unit in the army. Keys went along with the discussion for a bit but when the question switched to being more direct about where he was taking the couple and what he planned to do to them, Keyes would begin lying to them. He told Bill and Lorraine that he was abducting them for ransom and that he had other people involved in the actual abduction. At one point, Lorraine told Israel that she should just start screaming. He informed her that it would be unwise to do so as that would just piss him off. Israel drove the couriers in their Saturn to the Handy Suites parking their car towards the back of the parking lot next to his own vehicle. The roads in Essex were quiet as it was near 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning and the parking lot was vacant of any people milling about. Once in the parking lot of the hotel, Keyes went to the back of the trunk of his own vehicle in order to retrieve some items he felt he may need for his plans that evening. He had taken his backpack with him earlier, the backpack containing items such as a propane camp stove, a pan for boiling water, he had some water bottles with water in them, and he had a 50-foot coil of nylon rope, duct tape, and latex gloves. He referred to the items with him as basically a, quote, rape kit. He removed a shovel from his trunk, as well as some diesel, a big roll of 55-gallon trash bags, and a bottle of Drano. He took those items from his own trunk and placed them into the trunk of the Courier's Green 1996 Saturn, driving himself and the couple up the street of Susie Wilson Road taking the left at the lights and driving up onto Pearl Street in Essex Junction. Keyes would continue to drive the couple past the intersection at the heart of Essex Junction, known as Five Corners. He would then drive past the police station on his right and go up on the hill of Route 15 towards his desired location. Israel took the couriers to the abandoned farmhouse at the top of the hill of Route 15, the one he had scoped out earlier that day. He had kept the couple bound with the cable ties as he drove them from their house where he abducted them towards the farmhouse two miles away. The farmhouse was located on a main road near what is referred to as the Circumferential Highway, the Essex Outlets and Cinema, and of course, Lang Farm. This was a well-traveled route for anyone in the Essex area. It isn't a back road or even a dirt road. The location of the farmhouse is right near a very busy highway during the day. Unfortunately for the couriers, it was after 1 a.m. and well into the early morning hours of June 9, 2011, and no one was up and about on those roads that evening. No cars would pass by, really. No pedestrians or bikers nearby. And while Israel had spotted a sheriff's vehicle across the street in front of the farmhouse, he did not think there was a cop on duty in it. Keyes made a mental note of the sheriff's vehicle, but did not let it deter him from his plan that evening. Israel Keys parked the courier Saturn in the back of the farmhouse in Essex Center and, cloaked by the darkness surrounding the town that night, as well as the rain, he took Bill Courier out of the car and led him from the back seat of the Saturn and into the abandoned farmhouse. Once there, 
Israel Keys had tied Bill Currier to a stool that was set up in the basement of the farmhouse. Israel Keys had already assessed the farmhouse and its belongings earlier that day, and he had a keen recollection of just what items he had available to him at his disposal. Keys knew that he wanted to put Bill in the basement away from Lorraine, whom Keys planned to bring upstairs and tie her to the bed that was located in an upstairs room in the farmhouse. While Israel Keys had been tying Bill Courier up downstairs, Lorraine Courier had been left in the front seat of the Saturn. Israel Keys had thought that he'd tied Lorraine up well enough that she would be secure and unable to escape. As Keys was coming out the door to bring Lorraine inside, he realized that she had managed to escape her bounds and was currently running towards the main highway in front of the farmhouse. Lorraine was wearing only flip-flops, but she still had managed to make it almost to the road. Israel Keys, who had been a marathon runner, was able to catch up to the 55-year-old woman before she made it to freedom. He tackled Lorraine to the ground, pinning her to the grass beneath them. He was then able to tie her back up with more cable ties and drag her back towards the farmhouse. Once safely inside, Keys would then drag Lorraine Courier upstairs to that bedroom he'd located with the mattresses. He would force Lorraine Courier onto the mattress. Again, the cable ties would break, and so Keys would choose to use duct tape and create handcuffs that he secured around Lorraine Courier's hands. He then took the nylon rope and created what's called a trucker's hitch, where he fed the rope through the handcuffs and was able to secure the rope between the two mattresses and then back to Lorraine's neck. Israel would then tie Lorraine's feet up so that they were splayed apart. Lorraine Courier fought against the binds holding her against her will. Keys would even threaten her that he'd tighten the rope around her neck to the point that she would pass out if she didn't stop struggling against the constraints. After tying and securing Lorraine Courier to the mattresses, Israel Keys began to hear Bill Courier making noise down in the basement. Growing concerned that there was another possible escape planned, Israel Keys made his way to the basement. Once there, he observed that Bill Courier had managed to partway remove his bounds. The stool that Bill had been tied to broke under Bill's weight. When this happened, the cable ties that had been holding Bill broke, allowing for Bill to come partway out of the constraints. Seeing his second abductee almost free, Israel Keys snapped. He would tell investigators, quote, that pissed me off because there's a very specific way I want things done and I have the whole thing planned out. I have everything I need to do it, unquote. Israel would take his rage out on 49-year-old Bill Courier. Bill Courier was no longer willing to cooperate with Israel Keyes' demands. He began to stand up and try to remove his restraints further. Israel decided he would need to murder Bill in order to uphold his plan that night. Israel Keys would grab the shovel he'd brought with him. He would then repeatedly hit Bill Courier with the shovel. Israel would run upstairs, leaving Bill partially tied up and in the dark of the basement downstairs. He could hear Bill yelling up after him that he wanted to know where his wife was being held. Israel ignored his yells and went into the room where he held Lorraine and grabbed the gun he had brought with him, a 1022, which had a silencer attached to it. Israel would then go downstairs, and he could see Bill at the bottom of the basement stairs, looking for what he presumed was a weapon, in order to try and fight his way away from Israel Keys. Realizing that Bill was not going to go down without a fight, Israel turned on his headlamp and immediately fired into Bill Courier's body. 
Unsatisfied with only shooting Bill once, Israel fired the gun multiple times, connecting with Bill's body each time. Israel Keyes would tell investigators it was a total of 10 times he shot Bill Courier. According to Keyes, Bill was still standing up when that final bullet hit him. That final bullet would be the one that would kill Bill Courier. Keyes would then leave Bill's body in the basement and go upstairs. Once upstairs, Israel Keyes would go into the room where he'd bound Lorraine. He would take his knife and cut open Lorraine's clothes. He would then proceed to sexually assault Lorraine Courier twice that night. The second time, he would choke Lorraine into unconsciousness. After sexually assaulting Lorraine Courier the second time, Israel Keyes would gag and wrap duct tape around Lorraine's mouth in order to avoid her screaming for help. The knife that Israel Keyes had used to cut open Lorraine Courier's clothes would happen to be the same knife that was on his person when he was later arrested in Texas for the abduction and murder of Samantha Koenig. Keyes took all clothing and items that had touched Lorraine Courier and placed them in a bag. He then walked Lorraine Courier down the stairs of the farmhouse and down into the basement of the farmhouse. Once there, he had her sit on a bench and Israel Keyes would then approach behind her. He would grab a nylon rope and strangle Lorraine Courier to death. He would leave Lorraine Courier down in the basement with Bill Courier, her husband of 25 plus years. Israel Keyes would tell investigators that he poured Drano over their bodies in order to advance decomposition of their remains. He would then take all of the items he'd stolen that night from the couriers, such as their jewelry, the lingerie, any items that had potential evidence on them, as well as that suitcase. He would bring them with him the next day as he left the state of Vermont and carried on his way towards his brother's home in Maine. Before leaving the state, Israel would go and place his, quote, kill kit back in its original location in Woodside Natural Area. He would then plan to take the courier's car on a bank robbing spree, but the plan was foiled when the courier's 15-year-old Saturn began to have car trouble. It was at that point that Keyes decided to abandon their vehicle at the apartment complex on Pearl Street in Essex, just a mile away from the courier's home. Along his route, Israel Keyes would stop at the White National Monument Forest in New Hampshire. Once there, he would take all the items and he would light them on fire, destroying the evidence. He did admit to investigators that he did keep a few pieces of Lorraine Courier's jewelry. It wouldn't be until April of 2012, nearly a year later, when investigators in Vermont would finally know just what had happened to Bill and Lorraine Courier that night of June 8th, 2011. The Courier's disappearance had not been at the hands of someone they even knew. Keyes would mention to investigators that he had had plans to come back to Essex a few months later in order to burn the farmhouse down to the ground and fully dispose of any possible evidence linking him to the murders of the couriers. What Israel Keyes hadn't counted on is that the abandoned farmhouse would actually end up being bulldozed to the ground a few months after he supposedly left Bill and Lorraine Courier's remains hidden away and abandoned just like the building they were left in. When the farmhouse was bulldozed, no one had checked inside it as it was a condemned building, and so all of the debris from the building was loaded into large industrial dumpsters and brought to a landfill in Coventry, Vermont. After Israel Keyes was arrested and began to speak in April of 2012, Vermont State Police, the FBI, and Essex Police Departments would be brought in to conduct the largest search in Vermont state history. 
Once Israel began to tell investigators in Alaska about the missing courier couple, those investigators would reach out to Vermont police, alerting them to the connection between their current prisoner and the then still missing Bill and Lorraine Courier of Essex Junction, Vermont. The teams would work together with information given from Israel Keyes during his interrogation to try and find any sign of the remains of Bill and Lorraine Courier. Beginning with the site where the farmhouse had once stood and where Bill and Lorraine Courier had been brutally murdered and then moving on to the landfill in Coventry. Investigators did find evidence at the farmhouse site that had led them to go to the landfill in Coventry, but it is unknown what that evidence was exactly, as it has never been released as far as we were able to find. One thing I can tell you is that the day the mobile crime unit was at the farmhouse was the first day that many of us in Essex began to get an inkling that something truly terrible had happened in our small, quaint state. For 11 weeks, all three teams would comb painstakingly through the landfill with potato rakes, looking for any signs of remains from the courier couple, as well as looking for any form of evidence regarding their murders. There were over 178 FBI agents brought in to assist the Essex Police Department as well as the Vermont State Police in combing through the piles of filth in order to find any signs of the missing couple. The search parameter would span over 300 feet long and 200 feet wide within the landfill. It would also encompass going down into the garbage and debris roughly 8 to 12 feet deep. Teams worked tirelessly for 24 hours straight swapping out shifts as they went, knowing full well that the chances of finding anything relating to the couriers was less than a 10% chance due to the time that had gone past since the debris had been left at the landfill. Unfortunately, despite investigators' hope, patience, and perseverance, after 11 weeks, they were unable to find anything belonging to that of Bill and Lorraine Courier. Their bodies were never recovered and still remain missing to this day. T.J. Donovan, the Chittenden County prosecuting attorney at that time, was quoted as stating, quote, Their remains were not found, but I will say this as well. We wish we could have for the family and this community above all, unquote. I believe all of us Vermonters share that sentiment as well. We all wish they could have found the couple and given their family some form of closure for what was and still is one of the most heartbreaking and cruel crimes to ever strike the Green Mountain State. The couriers were lovely, upstanding, kind-hearted people. They loved each other dearly, and even in their last few moments, they fought valiantly to protect one another. Israel Keys took the lives of a couple who mattered. They deserved far better than what happened to them that night in 2011. They deserved to grow old together, to celebrate their 26th anniversary. They deserved to continue decorating their home for Christmas every year. And they deserved to have the neighborhood kids come over each summer to use their pool. Bill and Lorraine Courier will never be forgotten, and we can all hope that perhaps one day soon, their remains will finally be found, and that Bill and Lorraine Courier can be laid to rest together in a proper grave and have a proper funeral, as they and their families deserve to have that closure once and for all. Perhaps then, we can all forget about the monster who showed up in our community and destroyed such innocent and beautiful lives and we will only speak of Bill and Lorraine Courier and their bravery that night in the face of true evil. If you have any information regarding any possible leads into the kidnapping and murder of Bill and Lorraine Courier, please reach out to the Vermont State Police. And so we pause on this chapter of our series on the monster in our midst 
serial killer Israel Keys. Join us next week for the CTN Breakdown, where Ash and I will dive deep into the topics and research we covered in today's episode and discuss our thoughts at this point with the case. And if you like this episode or any of our others, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. You can check out crimetimenerds.com for connecting with us via our socials and for other show updates. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.